Hi, I'm Andy Brown, the editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy, and I'll be with you for the next few weeks sharing highlights of my two video broadcasts called On the Front Lines and Bloomberg New Economy Conversations that look at how COVID-19 is reshaping the global economy. You can find them all on Bloomberg.com. Going into this pandemic, U.S.-China relations were at rock bottom. They've since got much worse, with both sides trading blame for the COVID-19 outbreak, spinning conspiracy theories and abandoning cooperation on all fronts. To discuss what all this means for the post-COVID economy, I caught up with two Wall Street Journal reporters, Ling Ling Wei and Bob Davis, who've just published a book called Superpower Showdown. It's based on years of inside reporting from the centers of power in both Washington and Beijing. I hope you enjoy this and other interviews on how the coronavirus is transforming the business world. And thanks to Stephanie Flanders for letting me hijack her feed. Bob and Ling Ling, it's great to have you on the program. Thank you. you. You've both been living and breathing this U.S.-China trade and economic war from the very beginning. Bob from Washington, D.C., Ling Ling from Beijing. So bring us up to speed. How would both of you score this showdown so far? Maybe, Bob, you can address that from a U.S. perspective and Ling Ling from a a China perspective. Let's start with Bob. Sure. Um, And thanks. Great to be with you, Andy. Really, really appreciate it. So, um, you know, it's uh, opening day and the baseball season, and I look at it that way. I mean, we're like 3-3 in the bottom of the 17th. The pitchers are exhausted. Everybody wants to go home. I don't think there's a winner. It's just dragging on and dragging on, and they kind of taken a break. Uh, sure. Um, also, thank you so much, Andy, for having us on. Um, really honored to be here. Um, so on the surface, it does seem like China has scored some tactical wins. You know, the phase one trade agreement didn't really get into the matters that uh, uh, the leadership cares about most, industrial subsidies and uh, SOE reform. None of it was in part of the uh, agreement. And yes, China did agree to buy tons of American products, especially ag uh, purchases. However, you know, as we know that um, they're not meeting, really meeting the targets now. And the stuff they're buying now is also what China needs at the moment, uh, the uh, uh, soybeans and porks and chicken feed and all that. So, um, you know, uh, and also Beijing seems to be using this trade agreement as some additional leverage over the Trump administration. So the Trump administration wouldn't push too hard in matters like human rights and what's happening in Hong Kong. So on the surface, it does look like, you know, Beijing is gaining some kind of upper hand. However, really deep down, the cost of the trade war to China is super significant. And first of all, uh, it, sh- it has shattered um, investor confidence, you know, especially among business, private businesses. You know, we have seen for months uh, growth in private business uh, investment have been plunging. And yeah, the only thing that's propping up China's economy now is state investment, state sector investment. And another big casualty of uh, this trade war to China is Chinese reform. Right now, there's no momentum to carry out 
all those needed changes to the uh, Chinese economy. So longer term, um, I really think, um, you know, if the momentum, the reform momentum doesn't come back, it's really hard to see China will win in the long run. Bob, a lot of people congratulate Trump on standing up to China, but fault him for his tactics. What should he have done differently? Well, I, I mean, I agree with Ling Ling. You know, the, um, uh, the reform effort in China is stalled. Um, the U.S. isn't going to really get the purchases they, you know, they, um, they expect. So you got to kind of look at it from the U.S. perspective. What did they get out of it? I mean, has China changed in any significant way? I wouldn't say it's changed at all. Um, so what would be the alternative? The alternative clearly would have been to try to recruit allies, to work together, put pressure on China in a multilateral fashion. I mean, from day one, uh, the Trump administration rejected that. They blew off the Trans-Pacific Partnership literally on the first day. And, um, you know, various times just uh, made it clear they wanted to go one-on-one -on -one with China. Early on in April um, 2017, uh, the French President Macron had come to the U.S. for a state uh, dinner. He talked to Trump, talked to him, said, you know, we can work on this together. And Trump literally said to him, I got this one, you know, and, and that's the way in which they have tried. So, yes, they've gotten China's attention. They've certainly gotten the world's attention, but they haven't really gotten very much. And the alternative would have been to go the really hard slog route of, you know, lining up, running up uh, allies and confronting them with a, you know, with a united kind of world, sort of a WTO um, uh, alternative. Ling Ling, you're one of the very, very few U.S. reporters to have penetrated the Chinese leadership top ranks in Zhongnanhai. First of all, I want to ask you, what do they really make of Donald Trump? He was very confusing to the Chinese side, very unpredictable. You know, they spent really a lot of time figuring him out. But on the other hand, in a, in a sense, they also felt like they had him figured out. He's transactional, everything on the table. So get some, give some big number, give him a big number, and he, he would accept it. Briefly, who do they want to win the November election, Trump or Joe Biden? Um, I think, um, you know, obviously there's some officials in China still think to this day Trump is a gift for China because he doesn't care about human rights and all those uh, other issues. Uh, however, I do think um, there is a sense uh, among at least some corners of the government, they, they're, they're hoping for a new beginning because it's making things really hard for them, mm -hmm. you know, get, uh, as evidenced by the recent uh, very sudden decision to close the Chinese uh, consulate in Houston. So, uh, and they look at that Biden as someone that they might be able to talk to. Because Biden, as Bob mentioned earlier, uh, he might choose to go back to those multilateral organizations and, you know, choose to work um, with different nations, including China, on issues like climate change, you know, uh, trade and all the other issues. You know how Chinese love dialogue. They're good at conducting dialogues. So in that sense, they, they're hoping, you know, some of them, I, I can't speak for what President Xi Jinping wants. If I knew, I would have run a story about that, but I didn't. Uh, Right. It just it's a little bit divided. It's hard really to see for sure. Staying with staying with China for, 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 for now, some, some people watching the glacial pace of economic reform in China, which you've just referenced, 
have come to the conclusion that changing Chinese trade practices is basically mission impossible. I mean, if if Xi Jinping truly believes that the state-led economic model that he is building and reinforcing is essential to the continued uh, survival of the Chinese Communist Party, what could possibly persuade him to change course? Uh, that's a great question. For years, as you well know, Andy, foreign pressure was good for reforms in China. You know, back during the WTO era, right? Zhu Rongji, he's a he's a huge proponent for reforms. Used that uh, that uh, WTO negotiation to get China to do some very painful reforms, especially involving the SOE era. Uh, right now, under Xi Jinping, that kind of uh, um, you know uh, that's no longer the case. Um, foreign pressure. Is actually bad for reform because um, this, this narrative of the U.S. trying to keep China down is really taking hold, not just in official circles but also among the Chinese public. Ling Ling has taken us inside Zhongnanhai, the Chinese leadership compound. Take us inside the White House. So you've got Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on the one side, and he's pushing for a deal. Wall Street really wants a deal. You've got the hawkish Peter Navarro on the other side, who'd like probably to see all of American companies pull out of China and bring jobs back to America. And in the process, he would hope, I imagine, sort of bring the Chinese economy to its knees. And then you've got a president who's sort of swinging between these these two poles. How did all this play out in the negotiations? Well, I mean, in in our book, I mean, what we talk about is a Wall Street Trump and a blue collar Trump, and there are both. He is legitimately both of them. On the one hand, um, his rants uh, during the campaign about China ripping us off, ripping off the U.S., um, you know, stealing jobs and all that sort of thing. He does genuinely believe that. Um, on the other hand, uh, he looks obsessively to the to the markets, right, and he ping pongs between both of them. I mean, you see that playing out in his aides also, as you sort of you laid out. There are people in that White House who believe that China is the greatest threat to the United States since the rise of fascism in the 1930s. He is not one of them. Um, there are people in that White House who think, you know, you know, China's a problem. Certainly it's a problem, but, you know, there's a lot of problems in the global economy. And, you know, let's not let this get out of hand. And he's not one of them either. So he goes from poll to poll, and the different advisors play off of that. Um, and so at some points you see the sort of blue collarish, the Navarro and Lighthizer wing kind of went out at other times, uh, you know, he pulls back when the markets react. The most, the clearest uh, signal uh, for watching somebody as is, is unpredictable as Trump is, what are the markets doing? If the markets react, you can count within, within a week. He'll back off on whatever, you know, whatever it is. I think you can see this now on closing consulates, this speech, that speech against China. If the markets move, then it'll tamper down. If they don't, you'll see more. Bob, we're we're rapidly running out of time here. I just want to ask a couple more questions. I I know you've done a lot or you did a lot of reporting on the impact of Chinese exports on U.S., manufacturing communities, the so-called China shock, right? Uh, It resulted in several million lost jobs in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, North Carolina, uh, and helped propel Donald Trump to victory in the last uh, election. What's happened to those communities since then? Will they vote for him again? 
Well, you know, a lot of those communities are have been uh, so they're they're factory towns. We're talking about about basically in the southeast and the Midwest, and factory towns have not done particularly well under Trump. Uh, manufa- even before COVID, manufacturing employment's down, the tariffs hit. Uh, they might protect some companies, but there are many more companies that use products than than produce products. So, you know, they were not beneficiaries of this uh, trade pact or this trade fight, and neither were the farmers. On the other hand, there are many, many, many other reasons, you know, workers and farmers are, you know, supportive of Trump. I, I don't think he's lost, you know, I, I'm doing a story now on factory towns. I, I don't notice any, you know, shrinking away. It's all the sort of other kind of people, right? The suburban housewives, the sort of classics that you hear about that where you see the shrinkage, but back his base, his base is still pretty damn strong. Okay, quick one for both of you. This showdown is obviously a lot about a, much more than trade. We've gone from a trade war to a tech war to a talent war to a financial war. And now business leaders like Ray Dalio or Bridgewater are warning about a shooting war. What is the, the sequel to Superpower Showdown? Where is this story going briefly uh, from each of you? Well, I mean, a shooting war is like, you know, end of the world scenario. So, no, I don't think we're going there. We never got into a shooting war with the Soviet Union. I don't see why in the world we would possibly get, you know, to that extent. I mean, I think we are probably at this point at in a Cold War, right? I mean, it's a different sort of Cold War, but I think we're in it. I think one thing that's really hard to tell, I mean, we're also in the silly season, right? I mean, we've got three months to an election. So, I mean, all the sort of tough, you know, um, uh, steps that Trump is taking. If he wins a second term, does he really continue to that level? And if Biden, you know, uh, defeats him, um, I think the long-term trend, uh, trend is toward disengagement. But clearly, the tone will, you know, will change enormously. Last word to you, Lingling. Sure. Um, you know, it's kind of ironic in a way, right? So trade was the um, area when, where the relationship started to crumble. And now trade is the one of the a few remaining channels where both sides still talking to each other. So right now, this relationship really is hanging by a very, very thin thread. And by many other measures, we're already in a new Cold War. I would just hope that, you know, Chinese officials often say that the ball is in the U.S. court in terms of, you know, the future of the U.S.-China relationship. I would say it's in China's court as well. Let's hope uh, President Xi Jinping still means it when he says um, there are thousand reasons to have a good U.S.-China relationship, not one single reason to spoil it. Let's hope he still believes that. Bob Davis, Ling Ling Wei, Superpower Showdown. Great book. Thanks for being with us today. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll tune in later this year for a digital edition of the annual Bloomberg New Economy Forum, where business and government leaders from around the world will talk about the challenge of building a more sustainable and equitable post-COVID economy.